This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. What comes to mind when you think about the parable of the prodigal son? Maybe forgiveness, welcome home, bitterness, squander, love. What comes to mind when you think about war? Maybe soldier, death, destruction, victory, weapons. Today's guest is Stephen Elliott. Stephen was one of the two men most likely responsible for America's most famous fratricide, the death of NFL player turned Army Ranger Pat Tillman. Stephen shares how he became a ranger the events that led to the fratricide, PTSD, and how his life shifted from the role of older son to the younger prodigal son. Stephen's story is riveting, and it is a picture of the love of God pursuing us when we are faithless. Listen to what Stephen says about God's grace. I don't know why grace was extended any more than I can look at the story of the prodigal son and tell you why the father runs and brings the wayward son back into his home. I don't know why, because I didn't deserve that. But I know that it was it was the extension of that grace through so many different avenues at points when I could not have been less deserving that actually changed my heart. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Stephen how his faith played into his healing journey. His answer is one I believe every human should hear. Please listen to the end and consider sharing it with someone who is sitting in the dark, grasping at any and everything but our Lord Jesus, the one who is able to bring light. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Grace Enough podcast today. Hi, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. So to get us started, will you introduce us to you, your family, and take us through a little bit of what your career has been like over the last several years. Uh, Yeah, we live in uh, Olympia, Washington, which is just uh, about an hour south of Seattle. My my wife, Brooke, uh, and I, we have two daughters, Gracie and Hazel, uh, 17 and 7. So um, we're spacing them out every 10 years. So I'm just Uh kidding. But um, it's about time uh, for number three. (laughs) Right. Um, No. uh, But but yeah, that's uh, that's our that's our household is um, me and the three girls and a cat uh, named Franklin. (laughs) Um, I grew up in central Kansas um, and then I went to business school at uh, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then when I um, when I graduated there in 03, I started, uh, began a four-year enlistment in the Army and spent uh, four years from 03 to 07 on active duty uh, in the Army. Um, got out in 2007 and started with um, a large wealth management firm here in Olympia. I was a wealth manager, financial planner uh, for about, oh gosh, 
I guess nine years, eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, about four years ago, my partners and I, we started a, a new company um, called Capstone Trust. It's a state chartered trust company. So we, we do uh, trust uh, and estate administration. And uh, I run that company and kind of a first cousin to wealth management, right. but, um, but not. And so, um, so that's largely what keeps me, uh, what keeps me occupied. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about your Elliott Fund as we get on into your story. But your story is one where faith and freedom, destruction, war, redemption, all of those things kind of come colliding together. So take some time and just answer these questions for us. Tell us your story about how your faith journey began and then how that faith journey ended up intertwining with why, you know, you joined the military Mm -hmm. and then kind of how you fit into this story of one of America's most well-known fratricides. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. Both of my my folks, uh, my mom and dad, they were raised in the same little... Lutheran Church in, you know, Nowheresville, Central Kansas, and um, and that was my mom's kind of faith reality. And then uh, her and my dad, uh, they divorced shortly after I was born. She would say that at that time, you know, without in any way demeaning her upbringing, because you know my grandparents, you know, are very much Jesus followers in their own way. She would say that she didn't come to know Jesus until you know that time of crisis, and so um, she left the Lutheran Church, and and um, that was kind of a big deal. I didn't know about it. I was one, right? But yeah, it was it was my mom and I. Um, she never remarried, and and I didn't have any other siblings. Wow. Yeah, she was is very much a Jesus follower, and and so that was sort of the context that I was. I was raised in in which church for me was was very much uh, wasn't as much of a building, um, and it was mm-hmm. very much kind of wherever or she felt you know the spirit of the Lord was moving and wanted to be part of that. And so, um, so yeah, that was sort of my upbringing, and then went to ORU. And I guess the the lens that I would kind of describe a lot of my my faith journey, I suppose, is um, through the lens of uh, the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. So you know you have uh, Jesus telling that story, which is a well-known story, whether you've you know been around uh, Christianity or not. But in, in retrospect, as I grew up, um, I'm, I'm a good, I'm a, I'm a good rule follower. Yeah. I can't stand it if people aren't approving of me. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I viscerally like need that. And so in, in many respects, like the, um, you know, the aspects of uh, of law or rules or whatever that um, that would indicate, you know, you do X, you get Y. That's really appealing. If for no other reason, then obviously it appeals to our pride because then uh, whatever positive result or whatever blessing that I'm receiving, uh, really I can thank myself for that because yeah. I'm doing a great job of whatever it is that's on my list that I should be doing. Uh, I'm I'm doing good at it, mm-hmm. and so um, I, I wasn't probably all that awful, but um, but in retrospect, that was sort of the the more shallow, brittle sort of faith that I constructed was, um, you know, going into um, going into the military in 2003. Um, I was very much the older son in that story. I was the one that, mm. um, with, uh, without ever consciously thinking that, like if, um, I mean, I can remember hearing that message preached at some point when I was in college, and I can remember just sort of thinking that's the character I identified with was like. Yeah, that would be really hard. You know, you're you're working at the ranch and you're doing the right thing and it makes no sense. Why would dad do that? And, you know, mm-hmm. welcome your crazy brother back. And I just remember like not generally like a very self-righteous takeaway from a story like that, which would be something along the lines of praise God. It's great to know that 
even God can love people like that. And so that would have been more probably my orientation. And then, uh, you know, things were, you know, more or less ticking along for me as far as, you know, for the most part, um, you know, if I, if I worked hard, if I applied myself, good things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was more or less, uh, the, the attitude and approach and, and largely that had been my experience. Um, so yeah, I, um, I joined the army, um, in awake in nine 11, finished my senior year at ORU. And then three weeks after graduation, I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, on the road to becoming uh, an army ranger. And, um, I completed, uh, basically it, it's ends up being you're at Fort Benning for six months doing all manner of, um, fun activities that the army has for you. <laughs> And then by November of 2003, I had completed uh, ranger selection and I was assigned to 2nd Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, now Joint Base Lewis-McChord, uh, which okay. is just right, right down the road from us here in on the I-5 corridor. So I have to interrupt you for just a second for those who may not know, but when you go into the Army, you can immediately, be, do you get selected to go into that ranger training um, yeah. or how does that like how do you end up quickly going into ranger training versus just your basic yeah. training? So like the, the ranger regiment is basically the Army's version of the Navy SEALs mm-hmm. or rather the Navy SEALs are the Navy's version of the Rangers. I should say that. But no, they're both what are considered tier two special operations units, um, just different branches. And the Army does it inverse from how it is in the Navy. Um, in the Navy, like you sign up to be a, a radio technician second class. And then you check a box that says, I want to be a SEAL. And then they immediately send you to BUDS, and most people fail, which if all you joined the Navy for was to be a SEAL, that really stinks because now you get to be a radio technician second class for the rest of your enlistment, <laughs> right? So it's really with the Navy, it's because there's no other infantry unit in the Navy other right. than the SEALs. Like you start with selection, and if you make it, great. If not, you're just back on a boat somewhere doing whatever job. In the Army, the Army has other infantry units, right? And so then what happens is you start – it's basically this this wide funnel where most rangers have the job specialty of infantry. And so you start the same – you start with infantry basic training. You go to Fort Benning. You're with everybody else doing nine weeks of basic then that morphs into five weeks of infantry school. Then you go to airborne school. And then the final stage is, and all of these, you know, if you raise your, they're just all volunteer. If you want, then you can raise your hand and say, after you're basically an airborne infantryman, you can raise your hand one more time and say, yeah, I want to go to ranger selection. And then if you fail there, then you just get kicked back into another army infantry unit. But that's what it's like. You don't start off with ranger selection. You start off with Basically, just becoming a soldier, yeah, yeah, and all that, and then and then the the ranger selection is kind of the last. It was the last phase of my my journey at. at Fort and Benning. so, what I hear, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's working into that exact works based faith that you're talking about. Like, yep, I worked hard in basic training, and I passed, and so I'm going to the next level. I did yeah. well in infantry training. I raised my hand. I'm going to the next level. And then How? you get to see it in RIP. You get to see all the people who failed that you're better than. So, oh, yeah, that's just <laughs> yeah. so yeah. great for our egos, right? It really is. Yeah. So how old were you when you became a ranger? I was, uh, that was 2003. So I had, I was 22 and a half. And absolutely no battle, tra- I don't want to say training, but you had not done anything except your training in the States at that point, correct? Correct. I'd, I'd shot okay. my fair share of pheasants in Kansas, but other than that, no, okay. I hadn't been, hadn't been no exposure, nothing like that before going to the army. Okay, continue. Um, just 
you know, telling us once you became a ranger, what's next? So, yeah, I made it up here to Fort Lewis. Um, the war was, you know, really new at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Second Ranger Battalion had just, like, the month that I got assigned to the battalion had just had their first KIA mm-hmm. on an Afghanistan deployment. And when I got to the Second Ranger Battalion, they had, um, I think they'd been to Iraq once. But so all of this was new. And so, so yeah, I was assigned to, you know, you go through all the administrivia and um, was assigned to my platoon. Uh, and in my platoon were, um, it's about, you know, 35 guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, amongst those guys were two brothers, uh, Pat and Kevin Tillman and Pat, some people might know or remember, but he gained some renown just because he gave up uh, an NFL contract extension in order to, in favor of military service. Yeah. And his brother, Kevin basically did likewise, not, um, giving up an NFL contract, but he, uh, he and Pat joined together. And so we were all in the same platoon. Kevin and I, uh, were in the same squad. So I, I worked with Kevin, Pat's brother every day. In uh, so we we trained together as a platoon for about five or six months, and then in April of 2004, uh, we were sent to the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border to conduct combat operations, which for uh, for a ranger platoon just looks like raids and patrols. That's what you're doing all the time. Well, so a raid or a patrol, you're not expected to at this point. You're not necessarily daily engaging. In any type of battle, you're just watching for someone who may be crossing over carrying weapons, or what? Do, what really is that? So a, a ranger unit is um, generally, particularly that like this is April, so uh, our our deployment was considered a spring surge because mm-hmm. that's when mountain passes open up, and because um, the geopolitics of the area are such that you have this large tribal region, what they call it in uh, Western Pakistan, right. which Pakistan effectively has no control over. And so um, effectively, the the folks, whether you call them Taliban, whether you call them Al-Qaeda, the right. folks that would want to uh, uh, and have been seeking to usurp the government of Afghanistan that's in, in Kabul, those folks can hang out in the Western tribal regions all they want and then sort of flow back and forth across what okay. is a, a pretty porous border and very difficult to defend without lots and lots of people on the ground because of just all of the, the, the terrain. So that they would send, you know, people like us there to, um, so we'd be outside of the wire. They would ha- we would have objectives that Intel said that there was, quote unquote, bad guys here. So we would go there, kick down the doors, look for whomever. Um, sometimes, uh, so those were raids. Yeah. Um, those are mostly at night. The patrols could be anything from, you know, we're hanging out on a mountain at an op- observation post for a couple of days watching a pass and something happens, nothing happens. You're telling higher up how many goats came through. I mean, seriously, <laughs> like there's some days where it's just right. like there's not a lot of action here. Yeah. And then there's, you know, other times where, you know, we would be sent back and forth between we were working with the what they call the AMF, which is the Afghan military force. Mm-hmm. And so they had their own positions dug in um, along the ridge lines overlooking uh, Pakistan. And so there were times where we would get sent. There was reports that uh, an element was moving towards one of these positions. And so we would get sent to dig in and basically, you know, wait to get rocketed um, to augment their defenses. Um, and so that's that's basically what it was like. But most deployments uh, of any type, I mean, it, it it's not a you're not pay, playing Call of Duty 24 seven. Right. It's a tremendous amount of tedium and boredom, mm-hmm. um, which at any moment can be you know interrupted with uh, with war. But but that's that's a lot of it is walking waiting. around, riding around, waiting, you know, and um, in in a weird way, like hoping something happens, but then also not hoping something happens, exactly. you know, because. Because you're bored, but you obviously don't want to engage in battle. Right. 
Right. Yeah. You're not, you're not, that's not something you do, but you don't because it's like, well, that's what we're here for. So it's a, it's a very, yeah, it's a strange dynamic, but that's kind of what that, that's kind of what that looks like for, for a ranger platoon. Go ahead and tell our listeners, what were you doing the day that you engaged in, you know, firing the very first time? Yeah. So it was, um, that was, that day was April 22nd, 2004. And there had been some frustrating uh, developments. We'd had a a vehicle, uh, one of our vehicles was inoperable and we weren't able to, for whatever reason, uh, we weren't able to uh, get it hauled out with a chopper. We weren't able to um, destroy it. We'd asked to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. We said, can we just take the sensitive equipment off of it and then blow it up? Yeah. They they being our higher chain of command said no, no, we want the vehicle back. So we had this weird conundrum where we needed to get this broken down vehicle back to the FOB, which was about a four or five hour drive away from oh, where we okay. were at. Wow. And then we also had pressure to clear an objective that particular night. And so um our platoon leader, who's the first lieutenant, he basically said, Well, just tell us to do one or the other because I can't do both without mm-hmm. splitting the platoon. And I don't want to split the platoon. And he was told that basically you'll do both. And so, um, so we had been April 22nd, we'd been waiting around most of the day, just which was pretty uncomfortable. There was more and more locals that were gathering around our position and our vehicles, um, just watching us, um, all day, which, I mean, they're, most people are, um, they're not the Taliban. Exactly. They're people who've, they're they're staring at you because you are a scene to behold. <laughs> You're <laughs> American soldiers with arm to the teeth. And so it's not even that. It's just that we were we were all of a sudden being driven by some sort of artificial timelines and mm-hmm. um sort of kind of felt like the tail wagging the dog a little bit. Anyway, when all was said and done, it was decided that um the platoon would be split and one half of the platoon would go and clear this objective that needed to be cleared, um, look for bad guys. And the other half of the platoon would escort this broken down vehicle back to a hardball road, at which point a, a wrecker could actually come and get it because we were we were we were in the hinterlands. There's no paved roads where we were at. And so um, so that's what we were doing all day. And it was pretty frustrating. And then by by the time that uh, kind of uh, dusk was setting in, that's when we initiated our movement. We were in vehicles and started driving. And um, one half of the platoon went one direction. Yeah. Um, and then we went our way to try and escort this vehicle back and then get back to doing what we were doing. And so that was at dusk. When we finally, yeah, we sat there all day, you know, waiting right. around to figure out. And then finally, before at, anyone at about, started moving. Yeah, at around 6 p.m. or so local time is when we actually started initiating movement, which is not ideal. Obviously, the lighting of dusk or dawn is the worst. Um, yes. And Americans have the greatest advantage at night because of night vision. And so um, that's why most raids are conducted at night because the Taliban doesn't have night vision. Right. <laughs> so right. Um, you have a tremendous advantage um, with the cover of darkness. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that was not I- ideal circumstances for, uh, for a variety of reasons. So you head out and do you actually get to the vehicle and start, I mean, I don't know, towing it? How do you get it back in? And then what continues yep. to escalate that leads to your one half of the platoon and the other half of pl- the platoon interacting with one another? 
I mean, it was getting pretty stupid because we had like tow bars uh, were breaking. Because you really still have no idea how you're going to get this vehicle back. Yeah. Well, what we, what happened was, um, and, and so we didn't have, I mean, the train, if you can imagine the train, what we're driving on are basically these washed out wadis between mountains. And so, um, so it's not a road by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And you could, you could literally watch, uh, I mean, of the vehicle sort of get chewed up by the terrain. That's how uh, uh, severe it was. So yeah, they, that was part of it too. It was just like, well, we don't, all of the mechanisms and means that we have, it, it was kind of to the point where it's just like, if you want the vehicle, you can come and get it. Exactly. <laughs> because we've had it. Yeah. And so, so then, um, but that was not an option. So then um, we were forced to hire a local who had a truck who we didn't know this guy to haul out the vehicle, which that was just kind of another like throw your hands up. Like we don't know who mm-hmm. this person is. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that was the mechanism by which we were, you know, we hired, they call them Jenga trucks that they haul all manner of things. And so, um, so yeah, these guys were hired and hooked up the vehicle and, uh, we were, my vehicle was right behind him. And so we were leading out that column. And then, um, we initiated our movement maybe 20 minutes or so after the first element left and went to go clear, clear another village. And then, um, there was some confusion. We, we turned one direction, then we turned another direction, and we lost radio contact because of the terrain with the first part of the platoon, so we, we, weren't, we couldn't talk with them. And then ultimately, we, um, we took the driver's advice for some reason, and he suggested going down a particular route, mm-hmm. and so um, because he said the other route that we were going to go down was too dangerous, and so we did entered, you know, what was a very narrow canyon, so narrow at, at points that it wasn't even clear that our vehicle would fit through it. Wow. So then it was, I mean, we're joking because it's just like for, for all of these reasons, like it just all feels pretty stupid exactly. as far as. For a vehicle like that's not even working. Yeah. And just for like what our mission template is, you know, we had just been kind of turned into a really highly armed wrecking crew. And then um, all of the all of the decisions that led up to that. And just how those decisions were made, you know, it just kind of had you rolling your eyes because it was very, it was unusual in terms of how we normally operated. Mm-hmm. But as we, uh, as we worked our way through that, that canyon, eventually um, IED goes off um, and then we start taking small arms fire. Um, you can tell, you can see the muzzle flashes from the hills. And then uh, we return fire. Um, it's not clear that we will even get out of the canyon initially because um, the first thing that the drivers of the vehicle that are right in front of us do is they they jump out of the truck and they run and so we're stuck and so that was kind of the first order of business was just trying to get that vehicle moving and out of the way so that we could move through that canyon and not not get stuck there and so um that ultimately happened you know we moved through uh moved through that terrain and um the train begins to open up and um you still have there's muzzle flashes on you know various sides of the uh, of the canyon and you're firing back i i'm at the time I was manning a, um, uh, it's called an M240 Bravo belt-fed machine gun, so it's mounted on the vehicle, um, and I'm I'm firing that weapon. As the canyon opens up, and as we feel like we were actually okay, we you know we hadn't taken effective fire, meaning right. I didn't have rounds kicking up next to me. Nobody had been hit. Um, it seemed like we were fine. There was more muzzle flashes coming at us from the right. And our our squad leader, the commander of our vehicle, um, who was a seasoned ranger, he fired at that individual, killed him, and um, three others on the vehicle uh, fired at that position as well. Essentially, believing that to be an enemy position, uh, we didn't have any uh, any other information to the contrary. And and one of the mantras within certainly within the ranger world, but it, it, within the infantry world as well, is you know when all else fails, 
you do what your team leader does, you go where your team leader goes, and you shoot where your team leader shoots. So if you have somebody, you know, a staff sergeant who's deployed multiple times, if, if he's engaging a position, that's similar to him basically telling you to fire there. Right. Um, it's not maybe quite that direct, but it's you're, you're keying off of their judgment. And uh, I didn't have any other information to the contrary to to think that it was a friendly position. So I fired. Mm. And so um, turns out we we just we discovered um, quickly that, you know, once the smoke cleared that our platoon had sustained four casualties, two dead and two wounded. Um, one of those that were that were killed was um, an Afghan uh, military soldier. And he was the first one to die. He was the one that our squad leader shot and killed. It was his muzzle flashes that were firing over our heads, but it looked like he was firing at us. Oh. And, uh, and then, um, and he's of course dressed, he's not dressed like an American soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what silhouette could be identified, um, didn't look friendly. And then the other who was killed that day was Pat, uh, Pat Tillman. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there was two others that were wounded or our platoon leader and radio operator. They were both wounded. All of those wounds, which we, we knew this within about 24 hours of the incident, all of those casualties, um, were sustained as, re- as a result of friendly fire. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the position at the end that we thought was an enemy position was actually that first part of our platoon who, unbeknownst to us, we had gone down the same canyon they'd gone down. And they didn't know that because uh, we had no communications. And then when they saw the canyon erupt behind them, they responded as they should mm-hmm. and started maneuvering along the ridgeline to try and give us fire support, uh, which then effectively just put them in the same uh, path and in the same place as where we would have expected to see bad guys. And mm. so, yeah, so the upshot of that is, um, yeah, we, we had four casualties that day and, and all that was because our, our vehicle, the vehicle that I was on, you know, we fired, um, on what we thought was, um, uh, an enemy position, but turned out to be a friendly position. How soon did you know that you said it was 24 hours that you knew that it was friendly fire, that there were four casualties, but was it right away that you knew? I mean, I, I know you said the first time you knew that your commander had shot down the very yeah. first individual. Did you yeah. know immediately after that that other soldiers had gone down? You just didn't realize that it was fellow Americans? Yeah, like that night. So what happens is it's pretty much dark at that point. You know, we dismount. I take my gun. I'm told to take my gun to the far side of the objective and pull security. So I spent, you know, the rest of the night just staring down another canyon pulling security. And then um, – yeah, we knew. So that night I knew we had four casualties. Um, I did not know that night that it was friendly fire. I had no, um, you know, idea of, I didn't know who was where. Mm-hmm. And so um, it wasn't until the following night when we moved back to the FOB that, that then my immediate superior, who was the 50 cal gunner on our vehicle, which is a very large machine gun, that's when the rumors were circulating amongst the platoon, which do pretty commonly uh, within you know, you're, you're at the bottom of the food chain, so you're always desperate for information. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's when the word started circulating that they were pulling 50 cal rounds out of the rock behind where um, Pat was killed. Well, there's only one 50 cal in our platoon. And so that's when sort of the the record player lurches to a stop and you think, wait, wait, wait a second. Like if hmm. if he fired there, then why well, fired there? And that's when some some of the tumblers kind of start falling together. And then once we got back to the FOB, then there was there was two investigations. And then, you know, we actually those pieces started becoming uh, becoming a lot more clear that, oh, yeah, it it was it was friendly fire. And and we had a much better idea of who was where because we really didn't know going into that. Um, And then it wasn't until it took more time after that where, you know, based on the nature of 
you know, I, I know to this day, I mean, just, you know, kind of fast forwarding, like I know like rounds from my weapon, my machine gun, um, you know, they, they are the rounds that, you know, crippled the radio operator. I would have killed him if it wasn't for his body armor and, uh, you know, rounds from my weapon blew out his knee, blew out his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we don't know definitively today who, who fired the rounds, um, that killed Pat. But from what we do know, it's likely that it was one of two rangers and I'm one of those two men. Right. And so, um, so yeah, that, that became known as, as more pieces kind of fell into place um, over time. Well, and something that I found so, I mean, I don't even know if I can say intriguing or curious or sad is the reports that came in mm-hmm. and that were being reported in the media in America was not what was actually happening. No, we found that out once we got back. Um, Which was how long? That was about another month. So there was two, there's, you know, a critical incident debrief um, where you all sit around and talk about what happened. There was two investigations that took place in Afghanistan. None of them, you know, we were told real clearly, hey, you don't have to remember everything, but, you know, tell the truth as best as you know it. We did. And yeah, it was, there was not a question of, uh, there was not a question of whether or not it was friendly fire or not. And then when we got back to the States, that's when we discovered that the family had been told a different narrative. Um, the world had been told a different narrative. There was, you know, even ESPN had this, you know, televised memorial service that was that was actually against uh, for Pat. That was actually uh, in direct opposition to his written wishes. Um, that's one of the things you fill out wow. before you go is you write down, hey, what do you want to have happen to you? Do you want a military funeral or not? You can check yes or no. And he checked no. And the military basically decided, you know what, we're, we're going to go ahead and do what we think is best. So yeah, there was, and I say the military, I don't, I don't, the military is millions of people. <laughs> there's, right. there's a lot of really great integrous people who wear the uniform. And sadly, there was um, a handful of folks who, for a variety of reasons, you know, chose to, uh, yeah, they, they chose to lie. Yeah. And um, uh, that compounded everything and, and just made it worse for everybody, not the least of which was the Tillman family. Um, you know, they had to suffer through that, which is just unconscionable, really. I know you're enjoying my conversation with Steven, so I want to take a moment and introduce our sponsor who is making this week's conversation possible, Hope Threads. This organization was founded by moms in North Raleigh who have been inspired and motivated to join with highly resilient and talented refugees as they learn English and develop marketable skills to support their families. These women come from countries with political turmoil where they had to fight for the safety of their families. They've been given the opportunity to come to the United States and the challenges still exist, though they've changed face. Their children are generally thriving in school, though they lack the language skills to understand what's being said in parent-teacher conferences or to know how to get their children proper medical care in the maze of a medical system. Multiple barriers exist that prevent these women from traditional employment opportunities, as most of them do not have cars to get them to work, the finances to pay for childcare, or the language skills to communicate and advocate for themselves. Hope Threads was born out of relationships formed over years of serving these women by teaching them English or caring for their children as they learn. They are graciously hosted by Northridge Bible Church and have virtually no overhead cost as volunteers teach sewing skills and care for their children in a gospel-centered children's program. They started with baby items and have now expanded into also making women's earrings and dishcloths. You can find them online at hope-threads.com or on Instagram at hope.threads. Your purchase empowers a resilient refugee woman as she acculturates, learns new skills, 
and supports her family. You can also partner with Hope Threads by joining their sponsorship program. It is $25 for initial training materials for one woman. It is $25 to train a refugee woman for one day. It is $35 for 10 weeks for one child to be in their gospel child care curriculum. It is $150 for a woman to participate in Hope Thread's six-week training program. If you go to hope-threads and click on sponsor, you will see all of these opportunities to partner with Hope Threads. Also, through the end of October, Hope Threads is generously offering 10% off any purchases made by Grace Enough podcast listeners. Go to hope-threads.com and at checkout, enter GRACE10 for 10% off. Now back to my conversation with Stephen Elliott. You've got about a month before you come home to the States. You Uh get here. And what is it like when you hit the ground here and you realize they know a completely different story than what has actually happened a month ago? Yeah, yeah, I write about it in the book, but um, it was it was weird. It was kind of business as usual, uh, as much as it could be business as usual. I mean, we were um, the specific point that I remember that it really like it really becomes evident that we're operating on a very different script than I thought we were operating on. Was um, you know we were back. We had just been to the range that day. Uh, we hadn't probably been back for even a week. Uh, maybe it was just the first few days we were back at work after having Memorial Day off. And we had gone to a range and we're sitting around in the squad room cleaning our weapons, um, you know, just kind of talking about whatever we're talking about. Um, there was no like, you know, we were told, you know, hey, don't, you know, talk about what happened outside of the platoon. Well, we didn't want to talk about what happened inside of the platoon. Right. You know, like that's the last thing we want to talk about is, um, you know, you're kind of you're kind of just like desperate for anything that feels normal Mm. and that doesn't feel heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're sitting there just doing what we're doing, cleaning our weapons. And, and, um, our squad had two rooms kind of right next to each other in these, you know, old barracks in Fort Lewis, you know, all of a sudden we heard a, uh, a crash. It, It was like somebody just broke glass and, um, we all just froze, stopped, listened, like what, what was that? Yeah. And then a few seconds later, our squad leader, you know, walked in and um, he asked, he said uh, in a very diminutive voice, um, which was not his style, <laughs> he, uh, he said, hey, there's a, there's a mess next door. Would you guys mind cleaning that up? Uh, he said, I'm really sorry to have to ask you to do that, which, again, never apologized for giving an order. So that was weird. And we went next door and effectively there was uh, – Tobacco is a very popular product right. in the infantry, um, <laughs> particularly in the Ranger world. Uh, there's certain there's certain first sergeants that were probably born with a dip of Copenhagen in their <laughs> mouth. I'm pretty sure um, they they will and they will die that way. But um, so you've got and it, it's, this is gross, I know, but you've got like beer bottles that are used as spitters just all over the place. It's it's just sick. Listen, it's I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. I know okay. all <laughs> about that business. <laughs> okay, okay, so that's uh, that's very common. Um, well, we walked in the room and on this white center block wall was just um, just tobacco, you know, broken bottle or whatever. And um, it was from Kevin, um, Pat's brother. He had basically just found out that morning from the chain of command that, oh, yeah, um, actually, sorry. Uh, yeah, Pat was killed by friendly fire. Um, oh so uh, now, you know, and Kevin just couldn't understand, which I don't blame him. You know, he's reeling with that information. And then. Uh, we, you know, other guys in the squad are business as usual, right? Yeah. He just couldn't take that. I don't, I don't blame him for a right. second. So, um, so yeah, he threw a spitter at the wall and that was the point at which 
you know, our squad leader spent the afternoon with Kevin outside of battalion. Like they left for the day, right. went, talked, and then later that day, closed business, our squad leader came back and he was just like, yeah, this isn't going well. Kevin knows what happened. And that was the point which a lot of us were just like, wait, what? Like he didn't know what happened initially. Mm-hmm. And so then it is just this whole kind of unraveling of, of realizing that, yeah, there was very different narratives told. Because even in the press, like one of the more, at the time, one of the more famous images that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated of, you know, you know of Pat and as a football player, if you actually even read that article, it's completely nondescript with respect to how he was killed in Afghanistan. He just died in Afghanistan. Right. So um, the media didn't know what they didn't know because all they knew was what the military was telling them. So, yeah, it was that's when I first started realizing. And then very soon thereafter um, was when uh, myself uh, and four others were effectively brought into a room and said, hey, um, you're not going to be Rangers anymore. Mm due to uh, lack of weapons discipline. And so then you're, uh, I was sent, by the end of that summer, then I was basically sent packing to be it for the big army. So that's kind of kind of what transpired. Well, and so I'm assuming the reason why Kevin didn't know is because as soon as all this went down, he knew his brother had died. And so he was sent immediately back to the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, he and one other member of our platoon were immediately extracted from Afghanistan and they accompanied the remains back, mm-hmm. to, back to California. And then, yeah, so there was this, literally half a world away between what was happening with our platoon mm-hmm. and, and what was known in Afghanistan versus um, what the family knew and, and what was going on back in the States. Wow. Yeah. Well, you had said that it almost, I mean, immediately, the stress, the guilt, the shame kicks in just in your mind and your heart and your body. Um, but you're still in Afghanistan at this point. Yeah. And it, yeah, that sucked. But it was also a good distraction in a way like, um, I mean, that that environment and that kind of work tends to self-select and and or reward for people who can compartmentalize because you kind of have to. And so um, that's a really that can be a really useful skill for anybody. I mean, all of us, you know, we just sometimes just like, you know what, um, you just got to get through this right now. Yeah. And that's OK as long as at some point in time there's space to kind of set the rucksack down and say, OK, we got through it. Now we got some stuff to unpack. But that second part usually doesn't happen. And so it's just more compartmentalization. So, yeah, I mean, they wanted to get, get us back on the horse. And, you know, we did more raids and patrols, you know, the last couple of weeks we were there. And um, so you kind of thought like, well, I guess this was it. Like, I mean, it really sucks that, you know, we had casualties. It's it's awful that Pat's dead, but um, we're just kind of moving on. So, yeah, there was there was kind of a number of points, sort of false senses of closure where it's just like, oh, I guess this is over, but it's really not over. In mm-hmm. fact, we're kind of just getting started. And that happened multiple times. There was still I, it wasn't until like two months before I got out of the army that they were done investigating it. There was two more investigations. The The final one was a criminal investigation to, to see whether or not they would bring charges against the shooters for um, basically negligent homicide. Mm. And so that continued to just be this slow rolling train wreck. And a lot of that was just predicated on the fact that the truth wasn't told the first time around. Um, right. We know well, that. That's what like, I was going to ask, because is I mean, friendly fire is it, this is not something that's rare. Yeah. And I've heard you say that before. You know, this was a rare case because it happened to someone who was famous. Yeah. But is that what happens for every friendly fire or casualty? Do they do a criminal investigation? I mean, is that the normal routine? Yeah. No, no. In fact, I just connected with a guy who um, uh, he's uh, a member of the regiment as well. And, um, his 
uh, squad was um, tasked partly, and I didn't know this, uh, they were in country at the same time we were, they went out on missions looking for people that were supposedly part of the ambush um, that uh, that hit us. And on one of those missions, they sustained friendly fire. Nobody was killed, but guys got shot who shouldn't have got shot. So yeah, the, the long and short of it is um, our, our situation, it, it, was, it was severe. I mean, losing two mm-hmm. KIAs and two wounded, there's no question from from what you would call direct fire. Direct fire is like me firing a gun directly at a target versus indirect fire, which is like uh, a cannon or um, aircraft. A lot of your friendly fire incidences that, that happened that are the most severe, the, the one that happened a few years ago where five SF operators were killed, mm-hmm. um, that was because um, planes dropped bombs in the wrong place. That's more common than right. what happened with us where you had literally friendly units within 100 meters of each other who are firing on each other. That's that's less common, but it does happen. And um, and certainly, yeah, if it was Private Elliot who got killed, you know, we're not having four investigations. And so the reason we are, the re- reason that happened, and it's not to absolve myself or any of the shooters of, you know, any of their responsibility. Exactly. Um, but, but it's to say that in terms of the, the thing that it became was precisely because, you know, what society viewed Pat to be, frankly, what the army wanted Pat to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of bit him because, um, then, you know, he died in a way that heroes aren't supposed to die. Mm-hmm. And, um, then they lied about it. So all of those things together at a time when, you know, Pat's death happened, uh, within months of the Abu Ghraib incident in Iraq, you know, we were the, the invasion of Iraq happened in, in the spring of 2003. Yeah. That was supposed to be we're in and we're out. And then it's kind of looking like maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're fighting a PR war, frankly, and uh, having your poster boy killed by friendly fire within the Rangers. That's not supposed to happen. Having all that happen is not good for the business of war. And so that all of those things were kind of fueling, you know, that the narrative that was uh, that was spun. Wow. I mean, we could talk forever about just because <laughs> I know that you still support the military, but just not yeah. so much our approach yeah. to war. And yeah, I we, think we could talk yeah. about that forever. But if you want to touch on that just briefly. Yeah, I just think that it's, um, you know, there's a lot of other forces. I'm not I mean, interest full disclosure, I, I don't. I don't believe there's a smoke-filled room somewhere where there's a bunch of powerful people who decide how stuff get done. Mm-hmm. I think that there are humans who we're all operating on the basis of our own self-interest, and we pursue that self-interest, and then bigger trends emerge. Mm-hmm. There's lots of people who make lots of money from war, and that's just a fact. And that's been the case. We've been a consistently, continuously militarized nation since Pearl Harbor. We've never demilitarized. And so um, and there's it's a different I mean it's a multifaceted conversation but but yeah. but certainly the 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 long and short of it is the military is a precious resource and it's a resource that we have used far too indiscriminately to mm-hmm. solve problems that it cannot solve it just mm-hmm. can't it doesn't matter how motivated or how good-hearted which we've sent you know we've sent as many people we sent almost 3 million people to Iraq and Afghanistan which is about how many we sent to Vietnam and so we've managed to replicate that war machine in 18 years and um, I'm open to it, but I'm I'm unclear as to what we have to show for that um, 18 right. years later, particularly given the reasons like why I joined. Why I joined, it was just like, well, you know, Al-Qaeda attacked the United States, and so we need to go get those people. And then, um, you know, it's morphed to so many other things that I believe there's lots of people who have good intentions, mm-hmm. who, who believe that if we just don't quit, like we'll see victory. And then in some respects, I, I, I'm, I'm just... 
Um, it's, so it's, it's, it's just not, it's challenging to have that conversation because it's not anti-military. Um, right. It's not, we can honor people who went to Vietnam, who, you know, went to wherever they went, who went to Iraq or Afghanistan. We can honor them for their service. And we, as, as a nation of citizens, we have a responsibility to actually ask some hard questions about what was that working? Because mm-hmm. if we don't ask those questions in the name of supporting the military, we're actually expressing incredible indifference. And we're actually afraid. That's the worst kind of hate, frankly, is the, mm. is the kind of hate that doesn't actually push in. I mean, we're, you know, we're parents. We know that where it's just like sometimes love is really asking some hard questions. Yeah. And so um, I hope and I pray that, that we can have the courage to do that as we move forward, because there is hope when we're able to look at the mistakes of the past and say, yeah, let's not do that again. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, it's such a conversation that honestly I have, I mean, I can't speak to a ton because I do think that there's plenty of people out there who can, like yourself, who've been in war, who you can look at the big picture, look at the past. Where is the countries that we have fought against and we've said like, oh, we need to get them, you know, back to a place of democracy or for the first time to a place of democracy. How many times has that been successful? Yeah, not not too often. I, I was getting ready to say my limited knowledge, I can look and say, well, that hasn't proved to be necessary very many times because it didn't yield right. what you thought it was going to yield. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, and it's difficult. And, and again, it's not to second guess. I was in Afghanistan for six weeks, 15 years ago, you know, which gives me perspective some people don't have, but I'm right. hardly an expert. It's just you look at particularly with the um, when you look at it on balance with, you know, a what have we achieved from a geopolitical standpoint, but then also just the cost. I mean, yes. the cost is extensive in terms of and that's what a lot of you know, war story is about is just exploring that cost. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I say in the preface is if the story is worth interacting with, it's not because it's unique, because Pat right. Tillman was in it. It's worth interacting with precisely because it's ordinary, because this story and it's not a, it's not a military issue. It's a people issue. You know, trauma and the unseen wounds of just living life, they compound and um, they're all around us. Mm-hmm. And so um, until we start recognizing that, talking about it and, and engaging one another in community, the guilt's going to persist. The shame's going to mm-hmm. persist. Um, and we're going to we're going to continue to to slowly wither away as as a society, which uh, which we are. We're I mean, right now you've got unemployment that is below four percent and you have suicides that are rising. Yeah. And granted, the nature of this economic recovery is fragile. We know that. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are, quote unquote, employed, but they're just they're working their butts off just trying to make ends meet. getting by. Right. Yeah. So it's that's that's true. But that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to be like, you know, when we all have enough money to shop, we're not supposed to be killing ourselves. Something is going on that is certainly there in, in the military and veterans community as well, um, acutely, but it's not confined to that. And right. so, so yeah, that's things that, that I'm seeing, we're seeing anyway. Well, yeah. So speaking of just how our country is, we see all of these trends happening. We yeah. see suicide rates increasing. I know that you came back and you dealt with so much trauma. Mm-hmm. And you went down a road that you'll share with us here in just a minute. But how long was it before you actually got help? Yeah, I mean, it was um, five years. I was deployed in 2004. You know, within three, four months or so is when kind of the shock wore off and and started, um, you know, experiencing post-traumatic stress, hypervigilance, anxiety, depression, um, nightmares, you know, kind of you name it. And medicating with alcohol uh, to try and kind of take the edge off. And so I was kind of in that pattern. I was still high functioning. I mean, I 
I finished my MBA the last couple of years. I was in the military and, you know, went on and got a quote unquote good job when I got out. And a lot of that was the first couple of years, like whatever stress or strain or coping mechanisms that I were I was using, I could justify it based on the fact that the army was the problem. And once I was out of the army, then uh, everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. And then I get out of the army and it's just like, well, it's a new job and that's stressful. And so um, that's the problem. And then, oh, by the way, there's a financial crisis that starts in 2008. And so it's just like, well, when once that resolves, then in, there's always something but the common denominator in all of it is you. Mm. And so it wasn't until 2009 when, um, you know, my wife, Brooke and I, we'd gotten married in 05. First couple of years of our marriage were largely apart because I was doing whatever I was doing in the army. Right. And then, um, you know, I moved back to Olympia in 07. And yeah, then it was became evident that there's stuff going on that's not uh, it's not the army's problem; it's Stephen's problem, and Stephen's not really asking for help for that. And so, after a couple of years of that, uh, she was pretty well done, and I don't blame her. And um, so, it wasn't until I moved out and you know we filed divorce papers that you start saying, you know, maybe there is, maybe there is something yeah. going on. And so, yeah, then then it was kind of a process of just even understanding what that means. Like I, I mean, I'd seen counselors when I was in the army before and had been offered, you know, all manner of drugs, which I never took because it would have meant I would have to stop drinking, which I wasn't going to do that. Mm. And I didn't know what post-traumatic stress was. Like, I didn't know what that thing was. I just, I just knew the, or at least I thought like, that's what weak people get. Yes. You know, that's what, that's what happens when, when you can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And so, so I guess I'm one of those people now, but I didn't have, there was no cultural context for it. And there wasn't an idea. I it just didn't have a, yeah, I had no framework for it. And so it wasn't until 09 that then kind of started piecing things together of, oh, like, okay, I kind of see this. And, um, and that was, yeah, it took five years before there was even an awareness. And it took um, five years and metastasizing of those wounds uh, into other relational wounds before you start realizing that, hey, maybe there's something going on here that needs to be addressed. Well, so when you come home, though, when you came home and you were in the army still, was there ever any talk of this man has taken someone else's life and he probably is going to need to talk to somebody. Yeah, like, so I was super blessed because the short answer is yes. When I left the Ranger Regiment, I should have been assigned to um, another infantry division that was on its way to Baghdad because that's what I was. I was an infantryman. Yeah. And, you know, the war in Iraq was really just heating up mm-hmm. at that point. And so um, I pretty much had a one-way ticket to Baghdad um, in, a, in a regular non-special operations infantry unit. And then um, uh, I got to my due duty station. And then within 24 hours, somebody pulled me in a room and said, how would you like to go work for a general in South mm-hmm. Carolina? And I said, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, I'm sorry, what? Uh, the long and short of that is the last two years in the military, I, I spent on the East Coast working for a one and then a two star. And it was it was very providential in hindsight because um, because then neither of them knew initially when I started working for them why a former ranger was working for them. Mm-hmm. But then in both cases, um, you know, I was working for General McPhee was his name. When I got the phone call saying, hey, there's a, another investigation ramping up and we, we need you to come and testify. Oh, well, wow. you can't just exactly say, hey, sir, um, see you later. Uh, I need a week off. Um, there's going to be some questions. And so that was kind of the point where I had to, you know, I thought, okay, just kind of slide under the radar, bide my time. And, you know, nobody has to know why I'm here. And then that became evident that 
that's not going to work. And mm. so it was at that point, both of my bosses at different times, because then there was a fourth investigation that happened when I was working for my second boss. But both of them, once they found out kind of why, why I was working for them, they went into full, um, like General McPhee, it was, I mean, we were working 18 hour days. We were out in the desert in California and he basically said, stop. Mm. And he said, I've already talked to and I've got you connected with, if you want a chaplain back at Fort Jackson, he went into, we've got you lined up with an attorney. He went into full blown, like, wow. how do we support you kind of mode? That's awesome. And yeah, so, so they got it. And that's part of the story as well is it's easy to focus on. We need more uh, of some particular type of resource to provide to men, women in uniform or, or men or women who are struggling with trauma. And that may be very well true. But particularly for guys like me, people like me, you could have had, and I did, I had all manner of community and resources and folks that were arrayed around me that I could have leaned into. But because of my fear and because of my pride, I didn't. Mm. And so it's kind of a two, a, a dual faceted issue. One is, yeah, we need to make sure people have resources. But on the other piece of it, it has to be safe and understood how to even access those resources. Yeah. That in raising your hand and saying, yeah, I do need to talk to a chaplain, that that's not any more of a mark of shame than uh, I need to go see the medic because I sprained my knee on a jump. Absolutely. And and that sort of cultural transformation is what is really at the heart of you know the military mental health epidemic that we're seeing play out. And do you feel like in the last couple of years that that is starting to shift into more, you know, that it's not something to feel guilty about, to experience shame over, but instead it's something to get yourself emotionally healthy and to move into that space of, yes, maybe I do need medication. Yes, maybe I do need counseling. Do you feel like that's becoming something that is less shameful? Um, I think it, I think in some respects, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I'm not you know, I'm obviously not in a line unit anymore. Right. And there's very different, you know, again, military is a big place. So you can have very different, you know, one infantry company to the next can have very different leadership cultures depending on, you know, who's in charge. But what I would say and what I what I do here is that there's a lot of there's more talking of the talk, mm -hmm. but there's still a big gap between, hey, raise your hand. But then once I raise my hand, I'm not getting promoted anymore. Once, I'm, mm. once I raise my hand, um, like the, the policy lag is still there. I mean, just as of 2016, the Government Accountability Office identified 206 policies in the active duty military that reinforce and maintain stigma around mental health. Wow. So and you even see that play out in dependence of, of military. There was an article written, um, I'm trying to think who wrote it. It was probably about a year ago where these kids who are now applying to military academies, Air Force Academy, West Point, and they're kids of service members. These, these two, I believe they were two sisters. Their dad had deployed to Iraq multiple times when they were in middle school, a lot of stress in the family. Mm -hmm. um, they, as military dependents, had sought counseling. You know, one of the girls, right. um, you know, suicidal thoughts and this, that, and the other. They applied to Air Force Academy, I believe, in one case, and basically were flagged because of prior mental health issues, which was problematic on two issues. One is so like, I mean, use a different analogy. If I just got a, a scholarship offer from Auburn mm -hmm. to play football, which would never happen, but let's just say <laughs> I did. And then they find out that I broke my wrist in seventh grade. Does that make me unfit to be on their team eight mm -hmm. years later? Like that's a, that's ridiculous. But then the, the, the article was really, which as it should, the, the real core issue was one of HIPAA, 
because the the uh, mental health and healthcare construct with which those girls were engaging in was a completely separate construct than the one that was then they basically they shared private medical information that it was, is federally illegal those are just like anecdotes and examples of how i think we're saying the right thing but then in policy it's still sort of this gotcha yeah and and that plays out in a lot of ways and so that 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 is i think still it's a it's the conversations out there which is good mm-hmm. um the danger now, which is true with anything, is that um, lip service is paid to the conversation. People say the right thing. Nobody wants 22 veterans killing themselves every day. That's not a contentious issue. Right. Um, you'll have politicians and general officers tripping over themselves to talk about how much they don't want that to happen. The question is, are we actually willing to enforce and live out policy and cultural change that's necessary in order for that not to be the case where we don't have a binary response to mental health. I didn't need to be, think, I mean, I didn't need to be institutionalized in 2004. Right. Um, I, I was still a pretty high functioning individual, which is actually part of the problem. I was really good at compartmentalizing mm-hmm. and masking what was really going on. And so I would put on my performance for however long I needed to, and then have to go back and deal with, with what was actually going on inside of my heart. So yeah, a, a lot of it is just culture. A lot of it is, um, hasn't, it hasn't changed as much as perhaps the rhetoric has. Gotcha. Well, you ended up writing War Story, which is a book all about what you're telling us now, but you wrote that so that all the sales go towards your nonprofit, Elliott Fund. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about Elliott Fund, why you launched that, and you know how was it writing your story out for the world to read and know when we when I know, maybe everybody doesn't know, but some people, you know, agree with what has happened in your side of the story. Some people don't. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of, of conversations out there. Yeah. I mean, the um, talk about Elliot Fund and then talk about the book a little bit. But yeah, Elliot Fund was really, um, it, it accomplishes two things. One is um, when we decided to write the book and had that opportunity, uh, we wanted to put whatever financial resources that would come to us me as the author, um, we wanted to redirect those to other organizations that were doing good work within military mental health. And so, um, frankly, there wasn't tremendous amount of thought put into it beyond just, I need to have another entity that isn't me to receive book proceeds for two reasons. One is tax efficiency. If I'm just going to give the money away, I don't need a bunch of income on my 1040. That's just going to get passed through. Uh But then the other was for transparency. So no commingling of funds, you know, money goes to the Elliott Fund, doesn't go to me. And then if we have resources to work with, then we can give it away. That's all it is. Um, The Elliott Fund doesn't receive donations. People are inclined to want to give donations. We would encourage them to write checks directly to our partner organizations Uh because that's the whole point. Or so buy it, the book. It, or buy the book. Yeah, by all <laughs> means, do both. Yeah. Um, but that's that's one thing that the Elliott Fund does. But then the other thing is we're we're using that, you know, in the postscript of the book, we encourage people to go there because we've posted a petition that is addressed to the chairmans of both House and Senate Armed Services Committees and the uh, Secretary of Defense, basically petitioning for 17 specific policy changes within the active duty component um, that we believe needs to be fixed in order to begin to really um, address this issue of, of mental health. Because the um, the thing that we focus on a lot, and you, you'd see this in the news in the last couple of days, you know, the VA just, um, there's just new legislation around trying to increase access to private uh, medical care for 
for for veterans. Mm -hmm. That's great. But the, the reality is a lot of the mental health epidemic in particular gets wrongly laid at the VA's door. And it's not because the VA is perfect. They have all manner of ways they can improve. There's no question. But the reality is every person who is now in the VA was once on active duty. Mm -hmm. The unseen wounds that metastasize and really materialize when people are now the quote-unquote VA's problem, well, where did they begin? Um, they began in Afghanistan in 2004. Um, they began in Iraq in 2003. And so just like anything else, we don't expect somebody who got shot in 2004 to first receive treatment until they've gotten out of uniform five years later. Right. We have a whole method of appropriate responses from your battle buddy applying tourniquet to we've flown you to Walter Reed for surgery and everything in between. So that's what we're using the Elliott Fund aside for as well is just saying, hey, buy the book, don't buy the book. I care, but I don't care, honestly. Mm. Go to the site, sign the petition, not because we're trying to, there's not some specific legal mechanism that's gonna be triggered if we get so many names. All we're trying to do is turn up the volume. And so whatever policymakers that we're talking to, we have this to point to that says, it's not just me, um, it's not just uh, this group of PhDs who've studied this. Um, there's a lot of Americans who feel like this change needs to happen, and it needs to happen within the active duty component, um, not simply go fix the VA. So that's, that's right. what the Elliott Fund is about, is, is really just a platform for social advocacy and then just a tool for us to be able to um, channel book proceeds to, to other organizations. Yeah, well, and I also appreciate that on the Elliott Fund, you have a lot of resources there, videos and just other things that may be very useful to someone struggling with mental health issues or trying to understand, you know, how veterans deal with that, how active yep. duty deals with that, the statistics and all of that. So I would encourage anybody to go and, and read, watch some of those in addition to writing a check to one of those organizations. So while we kind of start closing up here, tell me in this whole process, process because you did end up getting divorced and you did remarry mm -hmm. your wife, which is just quite the story of, you know, what God can do when we really began to walk through a healing process. Yeah. What was that like? And how did your faith play into your healing journey? Yeah, I was mostly miserable. <laughs> but um, <laughs> It was miserable, frankly, to the extent to which uh, I would seek to maintain control. And, you know, I, I had post-traumatic stress for a lot of years, um, but the root illness that I suffered with was pride. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had to get to a point to where, you know, yeah, Brooke and, you know, Brooke and I, we separated and divorced in 2010. Uh, we were remarried, you know, the following year. Then that was sort of began the last phase of, you know, my own sort of downward spiral where we knew and we could name like what was going on with me, but it still wasn't okay. I went from being the older son um, who thought mm. that, well, I, I have a place at the table because I'm a really good worker to then recognizing that I'm, I'm the younger son. I, I mean, I walked away from the Lord for a lot of years mm -hmm. um, just in my own anger and frustration because I was that older son who was saying, doggone it, this, this isn't fair. And um, you owe me, effectively, the underbelly of that is you owe me. Mm -hmm. I, I go to church. This. I yeah. read my, exactly. I've worked for this. I had to go through a pretty long, dark process of, of just having my own, you know, ego brought forth and, and destroyed to where I was willing to ask for help and where I was, um, I was willing to, to basically say that, I mean, I was faithless. I mean, I, I, mm. I understand the question. It's a good question, but you know, I'll get that question sometimes, you know, where it's just like, you know, how did your faith help you? It's just like, it didn't, it was gone. I don't know why 
grace was extended any more than I can look at the story of the prodigal son and tell you why the father runs and brings the wayward son back into his home. I don't know why, because mm. I didn't deserve that. But I know that it was it was the extension of that grace through so many different avenues at points when I could not have been less deserving mm. that actually changed my heart. There's uh, there's a line in a, in a song that actually, in the song, I, I believe it's not very on the nose, but they actually are referring to the story of the two sons. Uh, and the line is something to the effect of, it's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start, which is to say that it's not the penalty or just the natural consequences mm -hmm. for our choices that actually change our hearts. That might change our behavior. If I know that I'm going to get punished for something, I might be smart enough not to do it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I don't desperately want to do it. It's just behavioral modification. Mm -hmm. And so the, the consequences of the law never change our hearts. What changes our hearts is the receipt of something that we never did and never could deserve. That's wow. what changes us. And that's what the Lord does. That's what he did in our life. And that's what he continues to do in our lives. So that's really, you know, we're just, um, we're just vehicles and, and really, you know, mouthpieces for his grace. You know, I can't, I, I don't have a, a formula for you other than to say that the Lord loves you and Jesus mm -hmm. loves you and, and life is painful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't, I'm still at times frustrated and yeah. um, I'm still, uh, yeah. And I take great comfort in things like, you know, the Psalms. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of like sort of messy, unresolved chords that are played in the Psalms. Yeah. And that's okay. Like there's freedom, there's freedom to lament and there's freedom to question and there's freedom to be angry and there's freedom to do all of those things. We don't just have to, you know, drive ourselves back to some nice, neat sort of Christian paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, life is really painful and messy and, and we need to have space for that to play out. But at the same time, God is is just incredibly gracious and mm -hmm. um, he's incredibly kind. And that's certainly been exemplified in our lives. Mm. Wow, that is a, a good word because it's that unmerited favor. Yes. Like yes. you can't work for it. You cannot earn it. You can't screw up enough. That's right. That's right. I mean, so I love the words to that song because it truly is the welcome. It's the embrace yeah. of God that has absolutely nothing to do with you. That's right. That's exactly right. Wow. And there's a feast on the other side. And then there's freedom. And that's where a lot of this, um, I mean, all this stuff is tied together, obviously. But that's where the experience of shame that I think is so widespread, it's, it's becoming more widespread in our culture because we're an increasingly divided, isolated, very image conscious society. Mm -hmm. And you can only have genuine community if there's vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very risky. And so if our identity at any point in time is based on what we have done or haven't done, um, or the money we make or the house we live in or the vacation we just took, that's very fragile. But if our identity is based on the fact that I have a seat at the table, mm. um, irrespective of how hard I work or irrespective of how hard I don't. The, the ironic thing that happens is once I know that, I become a much better worker for the father because mm. I want to, not because I have to and not because I'm checking some self-righteous box and patting mm -hmm. myself on the back. It's just like, well, it's just a response. That's what I was going to say. He's, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? It's the He's the first mover that's extended grace. And then I get to, I get the privilege of responding to that. Mm. Um, and that's where there's freedom, because then I have the freedom to with, you know, his leading and and hopefully with the right heart 
to go forth and do my best and and fail yeah. because I will. <laughs> exactly. And so and that failure doesn't change the security that I have in being his child. Yeah, and and that's and that's the base for me, that's the basis of identity. And when I stray from that and I find myself straying from that for in in so many ways because I'm I'm shallow and I'm selfish mm-hmm. and I I don't remember lessons that I swear I'll never forget. I find myself having to be retaught. Mm-hmm. And so I need to be rem- I mean I'm I should just replay this back to myself once a week because it's good advice. <laughs> Maybe I'll replay and, it for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, you know, it's 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 just we. I think we, um, yeah, we we all need to hear that in various ways and be reminded of that. And I, I certainly do anyway. So maybe that's just me. But well, and speaking of that, the interview that I actually posted this past week, Veronica had said when she was younger and she you know, came back to the Lord, she went and gave her testimony. And, you know, it was one of those high moments, exactly what you're saying, kind of that people pleasing struggle. She said an older gentleman came up to her and just said, you know, whatever you're struggling with now is what you'll be struggling with 20 years from now. And Mm. she was like, I, you know, kind of looked at him and said, thank you, but I was (laughs) so mad on the inside. Yeah. And she said, but it's just true. You know, 20 years later, I'm looking back and it's, the same struggle. I mean, because we all have this thing in us, this core of who we are. And I mean, really our core struggle is just one more thing we have to release to him to say, like, I can't do it on my own. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And invite, I mean, we were made and that's, and that's a lot of talk about that for a long time, but I mean, we live in a, we live in a a highly individualized culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that's been sort of, um, that gets expressed within, you know, the American church where it becomes a, what do I have to do in my spiritual walk? And, and that's fine. Yeah, we all we all have our own choices we have to make. But Jesus is coming for his church, not mm-hmm. for me, not for you, not for a collection of individuals. And so it's within, that's I mean, so if, the Godhead, if the Godhead exists in community, then maybe we should too. Oh. And so I think that there's a lot more invitation and a lot more freedom um, within that. And I get it. We hurt each other. And so people can say, well, that's nice, but, you know, you don't know that, you know, last time that I opened up and had this conversation, you know, I was rejected or, you know, I, I was hurt or I was manipulated. And and mm-hmm. so there's there's genuine, good, rational reasons yeah. why we do close up. And so I, I totally get that. I, I just hope and pray that we can be more willing in the right way to not hide and then to the extent that we're not hiding, that we can then reciprocate that properly with grace and mercy yeah. and, and just love. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Stephen. I really yeah. do appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I'm grateful that you share your story, that you're passionate also about just changing policy for the good of man. And so I really do just appreciate it and encourage listeners to read War Story and to visit ElliotFund.org, correct? I want to make sure it's correct. .org, not .com. Okay. You got it. But yep. thank you again for being here. Thanks so much, Amber. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, Would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. 
And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.